Like a lot of podcasters and content providers this week, I had to abruptly scrap my planned episode and scramble to come up with something different. The original episode, by the way, was going to be about whether we should call her Madam President or Mrs. President. I argued that we should call her Mrs. President. Maybe Mrs. President doesn't convey the kind of respect you would hope for, but if you take a closer look at the alternative, Madam is a term that can signal elevated status, but often with an implied nudge-nudge and a wink-wink. Who do we actually call Madam in our society? Usually people who run brothels and tell fortunes. But anyway, all of that is on hold for now, as we come to terms with the election results that actually did happen. We'll talk more after the break. This is the DuMont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. The morning after the election, I gathered up the humongous pile of unsolicited campaign literature that had been arriving daily in my mailbox and gathering on my front doorstep over the past few weeks, along with the ballot stubs from my mail-in ballot, and I went outside and dumped the whole mess in the recycling bin underneath the apathetic sunshine of a brand new, beautiful day. It seemed like the appropriate way to mark the end of something familiar and the beginning of something unfamiliar and unexpected. Once the initial shock passed, I started seeing this election in terms of its historical context. I started to see it as an age of television event, perhaps the ultimate age of television event. You know that on this podcast, we talk about the first TV debate between presidential candidates in 1960 as being the beginning of the modern age in politics, the television age of politics, Nixon versus Kennedy. It was the first ever televised debate and it was simulcast on radio. And afterwards, pollsters began to notice a curious thing. People who listened to the debate on the radio thought Nixon outperformed Kennedy, but people who watched it on television thought Kennedy won. Basically, Nixon sounded more presidential, but Kennedy looked more presidential. And looking presidential turned out to be the winning ticket. Well, Kennedy took the White House that year, and he also captured people's hearts, becoming something of a symbiosis between Commander-in-Chief and matinee idol. Well, all anyone talked about with Nixon was his five o'clock shadow and flop sweat. Nixon was so stung by his television defeat that when he ran for president again the next two times, he refused to participate in any debates. He won the presidency both those times, by the way. Nixon didn't debate on television, but he did use the surprise factor that television offered to help his campaign another way, by making a completely unexpected cameo on the socket to me bit of laughing. Despite the fact that Laugh-In was the most countercultural show on television, and Nixon was running as the candidate of Law and Order. 
The laugh-in appearance was meant to help Nixon with his image problem by making him more relatable, and it did. Saying those four words on the coolest show on television made Nixon seem like maybe he gets it, a little bit anyway. Maybe he's not so scary after all. And it didn't appear to cost him any popularity points with conservative voters. Win-win. Since then, it's become customary for presidential candidates and even sitting presidents to make cameos on other countercultural shows like Saturday Night Live, even the presidents that SNL ruthlessly mocks on every show. In 1980, Ronald Reagan used his telegenic good looks and his actor's ability to convincingly deliver his lines into a camera to great effect. In 1992, it was Bill Clinton who outshone his opponent, both during the debates and on the late-night talk shows, by being relatable and by rocking the vote with a saxophone and sunglasses. Bill Clinton had a youthful charisma that no candidate had had since John Kennedy, and that was played up to maximum effect. And of course, Barack Obama is a fantastically telegenic guy. He gets up at a roast and kills it. He stars in art house style film shorts for the White House Correspondents' Dinner and does 10-minute skits in character with Stephen Colbert, among other things. The Democrats had their TV presidents, Kennedy, Clinton, and Obama. But then sometimes the other shoe drops and the Republicans get their TV presidents, Reagan and now Trump. People I know who were too young to really remember the 70s and the run-up to Reagan's first election in 1980 tend to think of him as sort of a grandfatherly figure, someone universally regarded as a good president by both sides. But to my memory, Reagan was anything but a consensus figure. There was a lot more fear and divisiveness surrounding Reagan in his first election in 1980 than is generally remembered now. Fear about what he would or wouldn't do as president. Fear about whether he could be trusted with the nuclear codes and with the nuances of international diplomacy. And fear about his basic level of competency and intellectual attention span. Any of that sounding familiar right about now? Handsome and built like the college football player he had been, Ronald Reagan came to Hollywood in the 30s and acted in a bunch of B-movies before becoming the president of the Screen Actors Guild from 1947 to 54, during the Hollywood blacklist era. Reagan started out as a Roosevelt Democrat, but had become a conservative by the 50s, and eventually an outspoken conservative. He was most familiar to Americans as the television pitchman for the General Electric Theater, until some controversial remarks about big government cost him his job with GE in 1962. One provision of Reagan's GE contract was that he had to go around to GE plants across the country and deliver motivational speeches to the workers. He gave hundreds of these speeches, and he got pretty good at it. Reagan made his first big impression among conservatives on the political stage by taking his anti-big government, pro-American individual message and honing it into a triumphal speech that he delivered at the otherwise disastrous Barry Goldwater 64 campaign. That speech breathed new life into the vanquished Republican Party and sent them down the path that would later be called the Reagan Revolution when Reagan himself won the presidency in 1980. Now, people who look back on the 80s Reagan tend to remember him as a grandfatherly figure. But in the 60s, Reagan was more of a pissed-off dad. He ran for governor of California in 1966, basing his campaign on the premise that the Berkeley campus radicals had gotten completely out of hand and needed a good cracking down on. 
The lunatics were now running the asylum because society had gotten too permissive, too liberal, as they say. And it was high time somebody came in and restored order. Reagan ran on that message and he won. He beat California's long-standing and well-liked governor, Pat Brown, in a stunning upset that rattled the establishment and caught them completely off guard. Reagan's gubernatorial victory in California was just the beginning. It was the event that foreshadowed the national political realignment that started in 1968 when the Democrats were increasingly seen as the party of liberals and the Republicans started becoming the party of the white working class. It's an alignment that apparently continues to this day. At the time of his presidential campaign, Reagan said things that to some people sounded scary, apocalyptic, and unpresidential. He also said things that were patently unfactual and gave the impression that he wasn't always aware of the line between reality and fiction. In that delicate Cold War era where the threat of nuclear war was never far from people's minds, Reagan didn't always seem appropriately cautious or circumspect. He seemed to literally believe that Armageddon was on the horizon, and at the same time that we needed to tear up our nuclear treaties with the USSR and triple our nuclear stockpile. And at the same time, to do away with a good many of the government institutions that were put into place during the Roosevelt administration to get the nation out of the Great Depression and prevent a similar depression from happening again. The economic policy Reagan advocated seemed to many to be as risky and speculative as his foreign policy. His own vice president, George Bush, called it voodoo economics when the two faced off in debate as candidates. There was a fear among skeptics, and there was a frustration. A frustration that all the old rules of presidential politics just didn't seem to apply to Reagan. He made verbal gaffes that other politicians would have a hard time explaining their way out of, but nothing could stick to Reagan. He was the Teflon president. After his presidency, Reagan's legacy was boosted immensely when, within months of him leaving office, the Cold War came to an abrupt end. The entire Eastern Bloc fell like dominoes. The Berlin Wall got torn down, just like Reagan said it should have been, followed by the dismantling of the Soviet Union itself. Anyone who grew up during the Cold War will tell you that no one could have imagined that the Iron Curtain would fall so quickly or so peacefully, and that the Soviet Union would just disintegrate like that. So, in hindsight, all the fears about Reagan being apocalyptic and starting World War III just aren't remembered in the same way. For the most part, people credit Reagan and Reaganism with hastening the downfall of the Iron Curtain and the end of the Soviet Union. And both parties, Democrat and Republican, seem to cast a positive spin on his presidency now. I only mention all this today because the concerns and fears I heard about Reagan then are similar to some of the concerns and fears I later heard about George W. Bush and now Trump. I would not say that Reagan and W. had the same kind of presidencies, or that Trump is going to have the same kind of presidency as either one of them. I just want to get it out there that some of the fears and concerns and critiques seem to be cyclical and not tied into a specific candidate. And it goes the other way too, with conservative ideologues cycling through the same range of emotions every time a new Democrat triumphs. Now, as far as Reagan, I don't think that he needed television to be successful. He had an inner belief and confidence that drew people to him and his message. And he did well in debates, so he probably would have been an effective candidate in any era, before television or after. But the fact is, Reagan was a product of Hollywood, and he was better in front of the television cameras than any politician of his time, because he was the only one who had been a professional actor before. 
One of Reagan's nicknames was the Great Communicator, and that was because he used the camera so effectively. To the skeptics, though, he was always an actor acting like a president, who didn't always know the difference between the movies he starred in and the real world he lived in. In their opinion, Reagan showed time and again that he was fundamentally unfit to serve as president, but had somehow used his television skills to get elected to the job anyway. For a lot of people, this represented the Orwellian nightmare of our time, the fear that as Americans read less and socialized less and invested more and more of their lives staring glossy-eyed into the escape of television, eventually they wouldn't be able to tell the difference anymore and would end up voting for a presidential-looking TV actor to be the most powerful man in the world. And here we are now, staring down the barrel of a Trump presidency, with the Republicans taking the House and Senate in what is probably the biggest election upset in American history. We can call it a lot of different things, Proof that Hillary Clinton is unelectable, the spectacular failure of the pollsters, the conservative grassroots revolution, the end of democracy as we know it. Only time will tell what this whole thing turns into. But what we can say is that it's not just an age of television milestone, but perhaps the ultimate fulfillment of the age of television. A trademark of the Trump campaign rally would be when he would point towards the press box covering the event and say, look at them. Look at those nasty people back there. And members of the audience would turn around to glare at the media people. But for all Trump's stated antipathy towards the media, his path to the presidency was an absolute triumph of media, television, over substance. Trump bypassed the traditional methods and got his start in politics by playing a mean CEO on reality TV. Instead of, the buck stops here, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, or ask not what your country can do for you, Trump's signature line was, Gary Busey, you're fired. After doing about 10 seasons of that, Trump threw his name into the hat for the 2016 Republican nomination, alongside 15 other candidates, and it was still widely understood to be a publicity stunt. After all, in the TV era, running for president was free advertising for your brand. Trump wasn't the first guy to do it. And like Herman Cain in the previous election, sometimes the fringe candidates actually led in the polls early on, before things got serious. The 2016 Republican field was considered to be a weak lineup of candidates, as these things go. But people expected that a few contenders would break away from the pack and make it a three or four person race eventually. There were 12 debates in all, with Fox News and CNN hosting three each, and other networks hosting one apiece. Plus there were nine forums. So, 21 face-offs in total. The first debate was held in August 2015, during a slow news month and a slow TV rating season of summer reruns. Donald Trump, the fringe candidate, employed a novel debating technique. He didn't talk policy. He acted like a middle-aged version of Biff from Back to the Future. The networks loved these Trump debates because they brought in pro-wrestling numbers, not PBS numbers. So they indulged him, giving him round-the-clock coverage because he was good for ratings. The whole time people knew that Donald Trump was just a reality TV guy getting some camera time to sell more books or get a new TV deal. He wasn't one of the serious candidates. But then a funny thing started to happen. As the campaign progressed and Republican candidates did begin to drop out, Trump remained at the top of the polls. In fact, the other candidates' popularity, even the serious ones, seemed to fall in direct proportion to the intensity of Trump's attacks against them. 
The modern phenomenon of reality TV took off in the summer of 2000, when a brand new show called Survivor captured the fancy of the American television watching audience. Most people know the premise of the show. 16 contestants are put together on an island, and each week a contestant is voted off by the others, until only one remains. The surprise winner of that first season was a guy named Richard Hatch, a guy who bested his opponents through deceit, collusion, and amoral behavior. He played the role of anti-hero to a T, and did so with relish, much to the delight of the TV audience. Hatch won by being ruthless and playing the other cast members' good intentions like a cheap fiddle. He did so shamelessly, like Louis de Palma on Taxi, and he won. And the network won too. The Survivor Season 1 finale was one of the highest rated finales in TV history. For network TV, this was fantastic news, because its last batch of critically acclaimed hit TV shows like Friends, Frasier, and Seinfeld were coming to an end, and the networks were having trouble replacing them. Network television, the inventor of one-hour dramas and half-hour sitcoms, found itself struggling to keep up with the cable stations like HBO that were putting out what was now considered to be the best programming on television, like The Sopranos. So reality TV threw the networks a lifeline at exactly the right time. It was easy to produce, it didn't need writers, and people loved it. A whole slew of new reality shows debuted on network TV. Everything from Survivor knockoffs to American Idol to cooking contests. Unscripted competition was the common denominator, and the biggest rating magnets were the people who could deliver the most diabolical lines, whether they be Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay, or Omarosa. And it all started with the original Survivor villain, Richard Hatch, who stepped into what would usually be considered a noble endeavor, working as a group to survive on a desert island, and turned it into something ignoble. Donald Trump, who had always sought to get his names in the headlines by any means possible, including planting stories about himself dating starlets and gossip columns, soon found a home in this reality TV lineup with his show, The Apprentice, which ran for something like 10 seasons. And when Trump entered the Republican race in 2016, he used the Richard Hatch rules, the reality TV rules, to divide and conquer, picking his opponents off one by one until the field of 16 was winnowed down to one. Basically by doing an Andrew Dice Clay act, with no need to ever resort to discussion about political policy or campaign issues. Instead of calling Trump out on it, the other Republican candidates played along with the survivor rules, trying to keep their powder dry while Trump tore their other opponents down. And the news networks played along with it too, as long as Trump brought in the ratings he did. As Trump's popularity grew, he actually started campaigning for the presidency. He held rallies and worked the crowds and threw hats to the audience. It was a stretch to call any of it presidential politics, but the days of network news being above the ratings game were over. They hyped these pro wrestling style pep rallies like they were the Lincoln-Douglas debates. There were a lot of competing 24-hour cable news networks now, and since actual breaking news only happened sporadically a few times a year, they were happy to have reliable ratings grabbers that would fill up the downtime. So they put on their ringmaster hats and hyped these Trump rallies like they were primetime wrestling matches, interviewing Trump like they would interview a pro wrestler in character, not a politician. What is Donald Trump going to say next? Stay tuned to find out. They even ran a little digital time clock in the corner of the TV screen, counting down the hours, minutes, and seconds until the latest Trump rally was set to begin, or their next interview with Trump was scheduled to air. Trump did begin to introduce political themes into his rallies, if you want to call it that. Make America great again. Build that wall. Lock her up. 
He went out on stage and improvised, felt out the crowd, saw which lines worked and which ones didn't, and made the keepers into his campaign slogans as he threw hats into the crowd like a carnival barker. And he kept winning. Well, there's no need to recount all the details here. We know what happened from there. On election day, two-thirds of the electorate said they did not think Trump was qualified to be president, and two-thirds said that he did not have the temperament to be president. But by the end of election day, he was the president. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. I wonder what Gil Scott Heron would have made of all this. His song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, is one of the great three-minute social criticisms of television. But he wrote it from the perspective of an alienated black American in 1970, staring into the biodome of television and seeing that whatever sort of social revolution was happening out on the streets and being covered on the news, it wasn't really seeping into the fabric of mainstream television, which was still staunchly catering to a white, middle American demographic. Well, now it's 46 years later, and we're coming off two terms of a black president with some of the highest approval ratings of our time. And one of the stories dominating this year's news cycle was of the alienated white male, a demographic that was, for the first time, facing decreasing lifespans and increasing addiction to hillbilly heroin and things like that. Well, their revolution was the Trump revolution, and the whole damn thing was televised. It was a coup that started inside the biodome of television and then spread outward. The question on everyone's mind is, what happens now? And that's a two-tiered question. Tier one is, what's going to happen during a Trump presidency? And tier two is, what's going to happen after a Trump presidency? As for the first issue, the Trump presidency, the worst fears don't seem to be materializing yet. There hasn't been a coup d'etat or a constitutional crisis. But it's only been 10 days, and we're still months away from the official transfer of power. And although the first line of traditional checks and balances might not be as robust as it could be, with Trump's party in charge of both houses of Congress and the majority of state legislatures and governorships, we still do have a free press. And by the way, that's Trump's party with an asterisk. He basically hacked the party, and he doesn't seem to have traditional Republican loyalties or affiliations. He basically won the party with a hostile takeover. By hacking not just the party, but also the presidency, Trump seems to have conquered that last great frontier, broken the ultimate firewall between popular entertainment and the real world. But that is tempered with the notion that when Trump gets to Washington, he'll realize that even the presidency is just a small corner office on the massive barge of human enterprise. That barge has been grinding on at its slow, inexorable pace for centuries. It's fed by the energy of thousands of powerful and influential people, and by the millions of regular people who all get up in the morning, do their jobs, take the trash out, and send the kids off to school. Despite the cautionary examples of what happened in Germany in the 1930s or Cambodia in the 70s, in reality, it would be very hard for one person with one four-year term, or even two, 
to make this nation stop spinning on its axis and suddenly start spinning the other way. Even the ultimate disruptor like Donald Trump, if he hasn't realized it yet, will soon be made to understand that he's going to have to bend towards the arc of the already entrenched system, rather than the other way around. That's one point of view. In California, we just got through eight years of having Arnold Schwarzenegger as governor, and his campaign was even less articulate than Trump's. I think it amounted to Arnold going on The Tonight Show and saying, Cray Davis, you are going to be terminated. I'm not kidding. It was incredible. The largest state in the union, the home of Silicon Valley during the tech boom that was transforming the entire world, voted to recall its sitting governor apropos of nothing in particular, and to replace him with an action hero. A movie star who barely ever strung together more than four words. But he was known as a great businessman, with a great brand. And he was able to find a way to work around the entrenched political system and go directly to the voters, for two terms. Today, nobody even thinks about Schwarzenegger. We're back to our establishment two-term Democratic governors, as if it never happened. Ronald Reagan went from Hollywood to the California governorship to the White House. Schwarzenegger wanted to launch a career in national politics too, but it failed. After eight years as governor, he left with his reputation in tatters. He wasn't even wanted in Hollywood anymore. Today, he's attempting to launch his show business comeback by taking over Donald Trump's role on The Apprentice, as Donald Trump prepares to go to Washington and take over the presidency. If life imitates art, does reality imitate reality TV? I guess we have to stay tuned to find out. Maybe Trump can't make the world change course, but he can, ever so slightly, guide that barge in its own particular direction, along a course that we may have already been sailing down since the age of television added a new dimension to our body politic and helped persuade us that we would rather have a President Kennedy than a President Nixon in 1960. It's hard to remember that just 16 years before Kennedy and Nixon faced off, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had been elected to his fourth term as president. Roosevelt embodied the idea of the president as greatness incarnate. He was the closest thing this country ever had to a president king, elected not once or twice like everyone else, but four times. The man who led the country out of the Great Depression, through World War II, and into the modern era, also known as the age of television. Despite Franklin Delano Roosevelt's omnipresence as the great leader, very few people seem to think of him as being crippled with polio and unable to walk. Despite the fact that for the entirety of his presidential campaign and his presidency, FDR was confined to a wheelchair. It scarcely seems possible to today's average citizen that someone who couldn't move without the help of a wheelchair would be able to run an entire presidential campaign while keeping that information out of the mind of the average voter. Lots of people were affected by polio back then, and FDR's polio was not a state secret. We had a free press back then. We had newspapers, radios, photographs, and even movie reels. And somehow it never occurred to anyone back then that FDR might not look presidential. But television has completely changed our relationship with the presidency. We like how relaxed and confident Kennedy looks when he debates Nixon. We like Reagan, Clinton, and Obama. And while ideologically there may be big differences between these men, they all do share something in common, whether you want to call it the relatability factor, the I'd rather have a beer with that guy factor, or something else. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is the prototype for this modern kind of president. 
FDR was the first great communicator. He used the latest technology of the time, radio, to come directly into people's living rooms with his fireside chats, making himself avuncular and accessible to the American people in a way that no president had done before. When you heard Roosevelt's voice coming through your radio, you felt like he was speaking directly to you. And the people responded by electing him four times. But how would FDR's avuncular charisma have translated with the added dimension of television? JFK, LBJ, Clinton, Obama, all the modern Democrats are basically just auditioning for the job that Franklin Delano Roosevelt created. Even Reagan admired FDR as president before bailing on the Democratic Party. But the truth is, in the age of television, it's doubtful whether FDR could have beaten any of these guys in a presidential campaign. For all his relatability on the radio, he might not have been able to pull it off on television. In fact, the 2016 president-elect just made fun of a guy with disabilities on camera during the campaign. So what does all this tell us about that barge we're on and the direction it's being steered? The question for us here in the TV room is not so much what's Trump going to do in the White House, we'll find that out soon enough, but what's next for the presidency? Is it going to be like Schwarzenegger, where the system goes back to normal as soon as he's gone? This election wasn't just a rebuke to the pollsters, who assured us that Trump couldn't win even as the sun began to set on election day. It was a tremendous comeuppance for both parties as well. The Democrats for obvious reasons, but also the Republicans. Think about what the debates devolved into. Low Energy Jab, Little Marco, Lion Ted, Ugly Carly. Think about how Trump handled criticism. I like my war heroes uncaptured. I've changed my mind, and I'm holding off my endorsement of Paul Ryan for now. Megyn Kelly is bleeding out of her you-know-what. If Trump had lost to Hillary, decisively, as everyone predicted, the Republicans could have said, okay, well, that was interesting, let's not go there again anytime soon, and now it's back to the drawing board for 2020. But Trump engineered the 2016 Republican landslide that nobody saw coming. He snatched victory from the jaws of defeat for the Republicans. How do they put that genie back in the bottle? What's next for the party that got hacked by Trump? And what about the Democrats? Was 2016 just a rejection of Hillary Clinton? The Democrats had been in the presidential doghouse since the party split of 1968, until Bill Clinton successfully navigated the party back to the center in 1992 and won a couple of terms. And then it was back to the doghouse again for two terms, as George W. Bush beat Gore and then Kerry. For the Democrats, it felt like a curse. They tried to be the nice guys, the rational guys, the middle-of-the-road guys. They tried everything to recapture the center, but they just couldn't get over that hurdle that had been in place since 1968. Despite Bill Clinton's two terms, starting in 2000, they were back to losing again against a Republican candidate that they considered to be so patently unqualified for the presidency. Then Obama came out of nowhere and led them to two terms in office, and it seemed like the Democrats had finally cracked through the glass ceiling. But now, after eight years of Obama, they're back in the doghouse again, scratching their heads as to how in 2008, a guy named Hussein beat a war hero, while in 2016, the most qualified candidate in history, that's a quote, lost to someone who makes George W. Bush look like Abraham Lincoln. If the most qualified candidate in history can lose to the most unqualified candidate in history, Maybe they should start looking elsewhere for candidates. Or maybe not. 
Looking at the big picture, maybe it would have been hard for any Democrat to beat any Republican nominee in 2016. Clinton did win the popular vote by over 1.5 million, but the electoral college system being what it is, maybe the mood in the Rust Belt swing states was just a lot more grim towards the incumbent administration than people imagined. Would Bernie Sanders have beaten Donald Trump? Personally, I doubt it. Would Joe Biden have beaten him? Maybe. Probably. It's hard to see Biden losing Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan like Hillary did. Or would Trump have just run a different game plan against Biden and put other states in play? Well, on this subject, one of the first things I listened to right after the election was a podcast done by longstanding conservatives who did not endorse Trump and fully expected him to lose. When Trump actually won, they saw it as three things. First and foremost, as a stinging rebuke to the poll-fixated media culture in which we live, for getting it all wrong, just like they got the Brexit results all wrong. Second, as the biggest election upset in American history. And thirdly, as validation of their long-standing belief as conservatives that Hillary Clinton is election kryptonite. One of these podcast guys had said months ago that what the Democrats should have done was run Oprah Winfrey instead of Hillary. Those may be the words of a cynic, but it certainly made a bunch of sense after the election. Oprah could have appealed much better to the same audiences that the Hillary 2016 campaign targeted. And Oprah could have actually got them to turn out the vote, like Obama did in 2008. In fact, it was Oprah's early embrace and support of the still mostly unknown Obama candidacy that launched him into the national spotlight and propelled him to unseat the presumptive heir of the Democratic throne in 2008, Hillary Clinton, before going on to win the presidency. That pretty much all started with Oprah. Would Oprah have beaten Trump in 2016? She got better TV ratings than Trump did. She had a higher likability factor than Trump did. She probably has more money than he does. And because she has her own network, she would have had all the free airtime she wanted, which is what Trump managed to get out of the networks and cable news. People were talking about Trump setting up a network after he lost the election. But Oprah already has her network. Now wait a minute, what about the fact that Oprah has no political experience or positions to speak of? Well, how much did Trump have when he threw his name in the hat? The 2008 election was considered a milestone because it marked the first time America elected a black president. But the definitive event on that timeline is 2012, when America re-elected a black president. 2008 was a crazy election with a lot going on. The country's economy was in free fall. A real economic depression loomed on the horizon, and John McCain stumbled badly during that final stretch. Plus, there was the Sarah Palin factor. So, the 2008 election could have been seen as a one-off vote that the American public might reconsider and decisively reverse in the next election, never to be repeated again. But instead, Obama was re-elected, and that re-election seemed to cement the fact that it was real and not just some fluke. So, for shock value, it'll be hard to top the 2016 election. But from a history-making perspective, it's the 2020 and 2024 elections that will matter. Will the Trump presidency mark the first and last time that somebody wins an election like that? Or are all future elections now going to be a version of Trump versus Oprah? Maybe the stepping stone to the presidency isn't starting out as a senator or governor anymore. Maybe it's having your own TV show. And if you're going to run on the strength of your TV presence, maybe you don't even need a political party anymore. 
I'm sure we'll continue this conversation as it develops. A quick note, when this podcast was recorded, Hillary Clinton led Donald Trump by about 1.7 million popular votes. Today, the number has been revised to over 2 million. Well, thanks for hanging out in the TV room, brought to you by Soref TV. You can find us everywhere at Soref.tv. That's S as in Salinger, O-R-E, F as in Ferlinghetti, TV. Good times is recorded on tape before a live audience.